How do you know if you're getting sick? What are the signs? What are the symptoms? Runny nose, temperature, sore throat, exhaustion. Some of you do you do you have those feelings in your body where you're just like, oh no. You just they're like, I I know it's I get a tickle in the back of my throat and I'm like, oh no. Symptoms. Uh, when Ian was a baby, uh, if he'd get an ear infection, uh, we could actually know it before his eardrum uh, or before he had a fever. He, he wouldn't be able to sleep because he was a sleeper uh, and he, he slept like a rock. And so we'd put him down. He wouldn't go to sleep. He'd be crying. Uh, I remember one time we took him in and, and at, to the ER because, of course, no kid gets sick during a weekday, right? This, this was 9 p.m. on a Friday. We took him in and the, 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 uh, the nurse took us in, took vitals and so on and so forth. And, and the doctor came in and said, what's the problem? I said, well, he has an ear infection. He said, yeah, how do you know that? I said, because he won't sleep. He said, he doesn't have a fever. There's no ear infection. I said, that's fine. Check his ear. He said, he doesn't have his ear infection. I'm just telling you. I said, that's fine. Look in the ear. He said, all right, I'll look in the ear. He, he looks in the ear and goes, it's beet red. How did you know? This isn't my first rodeo. This is my own kid. We start to know the signs and symptoms whether our body is functioning well or whether our body is not functioning well. We, we, we know our own bodies, and, and sometimes our own bodies can even tell us if there's a front coming in, yes? Not only do we don't know our own bodies, but we know the weather then as well. You know, uh, there are signs and symptoms that we can pay attention to. There are, there, are, uh, there are indicators of what our life is like, and that is true in our relationship with God as well. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 today, so if you have your Bible there, please go ahead and take that out. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, and we are going to be talking about the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And this is, this is one where we commonly think about demonstrations of God's power, but there's actually a lot to be said in this story about what it means for our lives and, and, what, and the barometer of how our relationship with God is, the, the thermometer, if you will. And it's going to answer an important question for us, it's going to answer the question of who is God, because God is the one to whom we give our life, and then what the God of our life is will actually affect the way we interact with the God of life. Let me say that one more time. What the God of our life is will affect the way we interact with the God of life. And we're going to see four reactions to the living God in this passage. We're going to see opposition. We're going to see cold indifference, we're going to see tacit assent, and we're going to see complete surrender. So we're going to see that as we go through the passage. But first, let's take a look at 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 39. So starting in verse 17. When he, that is King Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. 
Now summon the people from all over to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or he's busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and has to be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. He said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. 
We give you thanks for the way that instructs us, not just about you, but about ourselves as well, so that we can see who we are in light of your grace. Show us today the way that we interact with you. Help us to know what our feelings are towards you. And I pray in so doing that we, we would deepen our relationship with you as well. Now, Lord, speak. For you have the very words of eternal life, but my words are, are vain and empty, just a vapor in the wind. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned that this passage is going to show us four ways that we interact with God, four attitudes, four different ways that we show our relationship with God. Like I said, those four uh, ways are opposition, cold indifference, tacit assent, and complete surrender. And these are going to be illustrated by different characters in the story, uh, mainly Ahab and the people. And so uh, we're going to start off and we're just going to go right through this passage and right through each of these different ways of interacting uh, with God. And, and right at the beginning, I hope we can see the opposition that comes right at the beginning of the passage. I love the way that Ahab shows his cards right away with Elijah. Elijah comes and Ahab says, is that you, troubler of Israel? Now, if you walk in and someone calls you, if you walk into the office and I say, is that you, O troubler of CCUPC? That is not going to be the greatest, uh, the greatest uh, hello on the face of the earth, now is it? Is that you, O troubler of my life? Ahab has shown exactly what he thinks of God. Right at the beginning, Ahab shows his feelings towards God. And here's the thing. Whereas most people would think of God as a solution and as a good thing in their life, Ahab shows right from the beginning that he believes that, that it is Elijah and Elijah's God who is the problem and not the solution for Israel. Ahab is directly opposed to what God is doing. Ahab is not happy with, with Elijah or with Yahweh. Why? Well, Elijah had pr prayed for drought to happen in the land, and get, well, guess what happened? There was drought in the land. Troubler of Israel bringing drought on my land? Why are you doing that? Things were going perfectly fine until you showed up, came here, and messed everything up. The feeling of opposition towards God. When we feel that, that God is the problem and not the solution, then we are opposed to the things of God. We are opposed to, to God being in the picture we do not want him to mess with our life. Our life would be, fr uh, would be fine were it not for pesky religion in our life. Like I said, to the opposer, God is the problem, not the solution. 
and all to these people, all of society's ills can be found in religion. There is the idea within this camp that, that technology and progress are actually the solution to all of humanity's ills. If we can just get past the mythologies, if we can just get past the ideologies, if we can just get past all these ancient kind of things, then we will be much better off. That's the, the, the concept behind that. And, and religion it does not provide any solutions. Religion really is the problem. Some of these people... Uh, 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 Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, some of the names that appear in this camp, they are the most vocal uh, and the most uh, well-known, although I believe Hitchens is dead. Dawkins may still be alive. I can't remember. Um, and here's the thing. Uh, the opposer is actually like what we're going to talk about of the, the person who is committed because both are totally convinced of their position. The opposer is totally convinced of their position, and, and they are fully committed to the ideas that they have. When we are opposed, we want to see God brought down and humiliated in the process. You know, the, the reason, that, um, the reason that, that Ahab didn't just kill Elijah is because he wanted to see Elijah and Yahweh mocked in the process. He, he wanted to, to keep Elijah alive so that he could really drag him through the mud. That's the, the idea, that's the, the concept behind the opposer. You want, this, you want the person to go away, but you know what? I'm going to make sure that you pay for it in the process. And so... That's why Ahab is, is there and calling, calling Elijah names and allowing him to live in his presence, and he doesn't just say, you know, go out and kill him. Now, Jezebel is going to try to kill, Ahab's wife is going to try to kill Elijah, um, especially after this event on Mount Carmel. But they're going to try to see him brought down and God brought down and humiliated in the process. Let me say, if you're an opposer and you are here right now, there are probably one of two reasons that you are here. Either one, you want to disrupt, and seeming as how that hasn't happened so far, uh, my guess is that, that that isn't the case at the moment. Or two, there is a relationship that you hold in really, really high regard that is preventing you from acting because you, you don't want to mess up that relationship, so you're here and you are biting your tongue. You're going to really identify with the blood flowing in just a minute as you continue to bite your tongue throughout a worship service. And that's the idea of an opposer, and we see that in King Ahab. And Ahab is, is going to go down as the worst king in Israel, the northern kingdom. He is going to continue to oppose God. But you know what? Most of us do not fall into the, the category of an opposer, especially if you have come at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning to this room and, and to this time. Probably not. And so we reach the second 
type of reaction to God and the second type of interaction with God in the people of Israel, right at, the, at verse 21. You know, after Ahab, the people instruct us about our feelings toward God and the world, and they're going to display three of these interactions. As we start at, at verse 21, notice the way that the, the people react to Elijah. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two, Olymp- uh, two opinions? That word waver can also mean limp or dance. And it actually shows up later in the passage about the prophets of Baal. But how long are you going to waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. (coughs) And what do the people do? Good, good, very good. That, That was it. They were asked a question and they say absolutely nothing. They were Presbyterians. No. Um... They do not know what to believe. They are there, and they do not want to commit to one side or the other. These are people who are standing there saying, I'm not sure I want to throw my chips in with either side. I'm not sure that I want to give uh, a, a response to this. I don't know that I want to show my cards. I don't know that this is a good idea. Cold indifference is characterized by not wanting to commit to anything certain. It causes us to be unable to speak, to to give a a good direct answer. It causes us to be evasive. It causes us to be silent. Or it causes us to be functionally silent. It's like if you're walking with a friend and and, uh, they ask you, um, so what do you think about... Oh, you pick any subject. I, in Sunday school, I said, what do you think about Matt Canada? And I thought, no, we're, we all have an opinion about Matt Canada. But what do you think about, let's say, the, the direction the church is going and your friend just continues to walk? Or they say something uh, along the lines of, <coughs> well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it, it's going. Insert anything here. What do you think about the new manager at work? What do you think about your new job? What do you think about someone's new boyfriend or girlfriend? That's a great one. We're coming up on the holidays and after the holidays. What do you think about so-and-so's new new significant other? And there's going to be, well, you know, the turkey was really good. (laughs) What did you put in the cranberry sauce this year? Uh, Did you just... Did you just hear my question? I Cold indifference is a defensive position. It's a defensive posture. It is something that allows us to say, I told you so after something goes wrong. Some people are more natural to this, just kind of, I'm going to hang back and wait to see what this is like. What do you think uh, about, uh, you know, the, the, the new iPhone? Uh, I don't know, we'll see. We'll see. There's often a jadedness to this posture. There's often a, just kind of a chip on the shoulder to... The, this posture. And you can hear that in the, in the 
people's silence, when Elijah gives this impassioned speech, when Elijah gives this impassioned plea, if God is, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But you know what? If Baal is God, you go and follow him. Stop wavering between these two. Stop limping between the two of them. And they just go, we'll see. We'll see. You know, if you have cold indifference here today, you, one of the things that you probably have in common with um, someone who is opposition, uh, who is someone who is imposed, is you may be here because someone invited you here and you value the relationship. It's not that you have any warmth towards God. You want to say, you know, I'm going to wait and see. But there's a relationship that you actually value, and you're here because someone might have brought you. Perhaps that was a friend. Perhaps that was a family member. Perhaps it was one of your parents that, that brought you. But really, in your heart, you're saying, I'm going to see. You're not really happy about being here, but the hour and 15 minutes is an acceptable price to pay uh, in order to keep the relationship functioning well. But here's the thing as well. If you have a cold indifference to God, it means that you are getting your purpose and your meaning in life from someplace other than God. Perhaps you're getting purpose and meaning from uh, yourself. You're trying to create inner meaning. You're uh, gaining your purpose and your meaning in life from some sort of in, uh, excuse me, uh, from some sort of social position. Perhaps that is a social position within your friends. They hold, hold you in as high esteem. Maybe you're the friend that always has the answer, or you're the friend who always has the right comment, or you're the friend who is always there, but you get your purpose and your meaning from your social position. Maybe others like you a lot. Maybe you are the go-to at work for things. But that's the other thing. It might be your work, how it makes you feel, how it affects others, uh, the way that, that it makes you feel because you've helped someone else or you feel that you've helped someone else. But your relationship with God is much like the people at the beginning. We'll see. I can come. I can go. It's all right. I'm not going to tick God off. I don't want to do that, but... I don't know that that's actually the way things are. So cold indifference. But the people get moved in their relationship with God a little bit. Elijah continues to work on the people and offers them a way to make a decision on God where they don't actually have to be the one making a decision about God. Do you get that? They don't actually have to make the decision. They just have to stand back and watch. And the people say, you know what? We're okay with that. Elijah said, listen, we're going to build two altars, and uh, whichever one the fire comes down for, that's who God is. And the people are like, all right. I don't have to put any skin in the game. I am okay with that. He gives a, the people give him tacit assent. The people don't want to... Uh, cold and different people don't want to make decisions and, and, and except for the status quo. 
And we see this in the people in verses 22 through 24. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'm going to prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of uh, the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. If you have a tacit assent to God, you probably have a positive feeling. But for you, you count the cost of the relationship, and the relationship with God is a good business calculation. Notice that the, the people don't have any skin in the game. They get the benefit of what is going on. They get the benefit of saying that, yeah, this could be so. Let's, let's test out who God is. They, they weigh the values and they say, yeah, that's, that works out. I'll buy that. And they go about their relationship with God as if it is a business calculation. It's a business contract. There's, there's no real warmth, though, there, if you notice that. And if we have a tacit assent to God, we, we may say you know, that, we, that we like God because here's the thing. We like the benefits of God. The people are sitting there going, saying, I get all the benefit out of this. I get to know who God is. I get to know which way to go. This is a great deal for me. And we can be the same way if we have tacit assent. We like the benefits of God. Eternal life sounds like a pretty good deal for an hour and 15 on a Sunday morning. Amen? Oh, come on. And I'm not sure we should be amening this, all right? That was a trick. We might even like that we can have some meaning and purpose in this life given to us. We like the fact that God can provide us with a sense of duty. We can like that God provides us with a sense of obligation. We can like the sense of a moral structure that God gives to us. That God provides us with a structure for our life so that we can live it. Instead of really having to try to make it all up as we go. We like the benefits of God. We like the, the, the things that God provides. But when it comes down to it, there's a calculation to it. Is, is this going to bother my life? Is it going to unduly cost me anything? You know, one of the things that has declined in America in, in, in the modern era is church discipline. And this is part of the business calculation because we say, you know what, if this causes too much distress on my life in the way that I want to live it, then I will simply go down the street to the next church and I'll find what I want there. It's a consumeristic mindset too, that business transaction. I mean, think about Rochester Road. You, we can throw a stone to the next church. Here's looking at you, Anglicans. We don't even have to get down to St. Ferd's. And so one of those things in, in tacit ascent is that, that when the cost becomes too great, we check out. We say, mm -mm, I'm not going to do it. That's the, that isn't what I signed up for. 
the cost is outweighing the benefit. Here's the thing. If, if you have tacit assent to God, you may even recognize that there may be more, that you need some convincing. And, and I want to say this because uh, uh, when it comes to tacit assent, you know, it may sound like it's a, oh, that's, that's not me. I'm, I'm not a tacit, I'm here after all. But tacit assent, I want to highlight, is probably the greatest danger to Christians of, of any of the three categories that we've talked about so far. Tacit assent is, is, is that area that lets us feel like we're in, but we keep a toe out. Have you ever gone to the ocean and you put a toe in just to see how it feels before you actually go in? We, you know, when Katie and I go on vacation, we go in, in, on vacation in Maine and we test the waters up there. Oh, I don't know if I want to go in. We try things out, we're, we're there, but you know what? I'm not sure that I'm totally there yet. And if the water is too cold, then I'm out. Likewise, for me, if I'm down in the south and I'm along the Gulf Coast waters or I'm down in the South Carolina waters, if there are too many living organisms in that water, I'm out. I have a tacit ascent with the ocean. It's a good thing, but you know what? If the cost gets too great, I'm out. And that's the way that we can be as Christians with the faith. I like the benefits of God. I like the idea of eternal life. I like the idea of all these things. But you know what? If it comes down to it, if the cost gets too great, no. I get to remain judge and Lord over my entire life. Like I said, it gives us the idea that we've been there, that we're there, without actually being there. Like saying that, that I went to the ocean without actually going into the ocean. Where'd you go on vacation? Went to the beach in Maine. Oh, that must have been wonderful. Yeah, it was great. How much time do you spend in the ocean? Well, wait a minute. What were you doing there then? Why why'd you go? I like the way it makes me feel. But you weren't even in there. You see how this can translate into a life of faith where we can say, I like the way that it makes me feel, but were you actually in there? Jesus warns about this in his teachings. That, that there are going to be people on the day of Christ's return that say, Lord, I did this for you and I did this for you and, I, and, and he's going to say, I don't know who you are. Like you were around, but you were never in. And so I want to pause. Uh, the, the reason I'm stopping here for just a second is because we want, I want us to understand the risk of this category. It is an area where we can very, very easily become stuck and I don't want that for us. I want us to know, just like Elijah was saying, if, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if not, choose one side or the other. Notice to Elijah, it's actually better to follow Baal than it is to waver between the two. You notice that? It, it's actually better to be totally opposed to God 
than it is to kind of say, I'd like it both ways. You know, I want to be a part of society and I want to have the relationship with, with God. I want, I want to, to be able to follow the rules of society that I like and for all the rules of God that I like and, and not have those come into conflict. I'll sort it out. But are we in or are we out? Tacit assent. But then we get to the final part of this passage in verse 39. God demonstrates his power before all of the people. And it says in verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They have given themselves over entirely and completely to the will of God. In this understanding, in complete surrender, the realities of this world are secondary to the reality of God in our life. I'm going to borrow a phrase from Churchill, Winston Churchill here for a second. Churchill once commented that success is not final, failure is not fail, is not fatal. And Churchill went on to talk about courage and determination. In, in response to this. But I want to talk about this in, in light of complete surrender to God, that success is not, uh, is, um, success is not uh, final and that uh, failure is not fatal. If I can get that quote <laughs> right in my head. Because here's the thing. We can hold those things lightly. As people completely surrendered to the will of God, as people who want to satisfy God and God alone, we can look at the, the successes of this life and we can hold them lightly. We can look, we could be the, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and say, it's all right. But let me tell you what's really amazing in this world. Likewise, as people who are completely surrendered to the will and to God, to the will of God and to God himself, we can look at failure and we can say, it's all right. Because Christ has overcome the world and I am a dearly loved child of Christ. This failure does not define me. It does not impact my identity identity. It has nothing to say about who I am, but Christ does. That is someone who is completely surrendered to the will of God. That is someone who, who wants and understands the identity of Christ in their life. When we are completely surrendered, the reality of this world, the, the, the reality of... <laughs> The reality of this pew, which hurts, mind you, when you do that, is less than the reality of God in our lives. God is more solid, more present, more close than this pew is to me when we are completely surrendered over to his will. That is the idea of complete surrender. That's what the people finally get to when they're willing to commit, when they're willing not just to, to um, proclaim that the Lord is God, but they are willing to get rid of their faith in the bales. 
Paul talks about this when he says uh, uh, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's nothing in this world that Paul could do or experience that is going to separate him from the love of Christ. And he tells us that that is our reality too. Worry starts to subside because Christ is greater than all of our worry. That brings us to the question, where are you in these four? This is kind of a spectrum. Where, where do you land? If you're landing in the opposition court, let me say, first of all, thank you for sitting through a sermon and a worship service. You've done well. Really appreciate that. And I'm going to pray for you. If you are coldly indifferent, let me ask you this question. Is meaning that you create in this life all that there really is? Or is God really just a force that wants to see people happy according to the values of this age? If you are coldly indifferent, do you think that, that you can sustain a measure of self-purpose and self-meaning for your entire life? That's a hard place to be. And I think that's a reason why we see so much uh, trouble in mental health and so much trouble with people in anxiety right now. We are finding that the enterprise of, of trying to create meaning for ourselves apart from something larger than ourselves is too much. And, and no matter what we hitch our identity to, if we're coldly indifferent to God, whatever else we might hitch our identity to is going to pass away. There's only so much money to earn. There's only so much status to gain. There's only um, family will pass away relationships will be broken, and we've got to continue, continuously retool and recreate, and that is an exhausting enterprise. Is that really going to satisfy? Let me challenge you to dig deeper into your worldview and find that it ends in emptiness, and it's unsustainable, ultimately. If you find yourself in tacit assent, let me ask the question that Elijah asked. Why are you on the fence? What is it that makes you say you don't want to be all in? What is the cost that you're afraid to pay? Because there is something that is holding you back. There is something that is preventing you from, from being all in. And it's some sort of cost that you are afraid of paying. It's something that you're afraid that you would lose. What is that? Love to talk with you about that. If you find yourself all in and you find yourself at complete surrender, let me encourage you, keep going. And I want to borrow a phrase that I heard from the Reverend Dr. Asa Lee last weekend at the LFM bank... FLM, sorry, LFM is Leighton Ford Ministries. So, um, FLM, goodness gracious, alphabet soup. Uh, and I ate it in the wrong way. Um, 
But he spoke and he said, I, I want to encourage you, let me go back and say that if you're current, complete surrender, keep going. And let me use the, the phrase that he, he used. Remember that free people, free people. Free people, free people. Who are you seeking to free now that you are, that you are free of the, the worries of this world? That you have hitched your identity and your purpose to Jesus Christ? Who is it that you need to seek out and to help them be free as well? Free people, free people. As we look at this passage, we can see the different ways. And we can see the, uh, the, the way that the God of our life will affect how we interact with the God of life. My prayer is that, that we can look at this over this week and we can move ourselves to a deeper trust of Jesus Christ this week. Let me pray for you in that. Lord, thank you for this example from Elijah that moves us, that should move us to trust in you more completely. Help us to know what those things in our lives are that would prevent us from loving you more. The things that hold us back, the costs that we are afraid to pay, the, the questions and the doubts that arise in our minds, and help us to seek to have them answered in you. Remind us of your goodness and your grace. Remind us of your purposes and of your promises in Jesus Christ in this world, and move us more deeply in faith. Lord, I give you thanks that you do not give up on us, but your faithfulness endures forever. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.